0: Welcome to the Burn Bag Podcast's collaboration with Trenchcoat Advisors, our mini series, Risky Business. Thank you for joining us for the latest edition of it. Uh, we are happy to be joined for this edition uh, with David S. Lee. Uh, David is an award-winning teacher that is active broadly in the areas of ethics, fintech, leadership, law, and corporate governance. A recipient of multiple Teaching Excellence and Teaching Innovation Awards, David is the first business academic to ever receive a UGCT te- Teaching Award, the highest university teaching honor in Hong Kong. Uh, David teaches in the undergraduate executive education, MBA, and other taught uh, postgraduate degree programs, including the IMBA with Fudan University and the Executive MBA Global Asia, offered with Columbia Business School and London Business School. Uh, David is also a co-author of the first Asia-focused business ethics textbook, Business Ethics Ethical Decision Making and Cases, and Asia Edition. Uh, and he has a forthcoming book entitled A Perilous Moment Navigating the New National Security Economy. And prior to joining the University of Hong Kong, David worked in investment management. Uh, he started his career at Goldman Sachs and also has experience as a lawyer in management consulting and working with entrepreneurial ventures. So David has a lot of great experience. But uh, Holden, uh, you're joining me here today. Uh, can you sort of tell me? Tell us why uh, you know, we wanted to have David join us for this program.
1: Well, well Andre, thanks very much. I, I think you've you named a lot of the great reasons. David has a really interesting background, comes at the subject that we're dealing with, you know, the intersection of national security and business, and comes from a, from a, a somewhat different perspective than we've had on the show um, uh, previously. Um, and, and you highlighted one of the main reasons. He's got a forthcoming book where he's really sort of focused on, on essentially the, this new national security economy, um, as he and his co-author have, have termed it. Um, and really, in, in, in my mind, uh, he, there was a short uh, snippet of this um, in Harvard Business Review last year, and it really encapsulated a lot of the same sort of issues and ideas and stuff that we've been trying to wrestle with. Um, and It seems like a really burgeoning area. Um, David is a really an expert on this. I've, I've been fortunate enough to have a conversation with him about this and talk about this um, with him. Knows a lot about it and has a, a lot of great uh, insights on what's happening in this area. Um, and so I think in many ways, he can add a little bit of rigor to some of the discussions that we've had, which have been very practical and pragmatic with some people who have, you know, coming from the pure national security side, um, but and have now moved over to business. Um, David's coming and really can kind of give us much more of a framework for how to think and talk about this. Um, so really excited to have that discussion
0: with him today. So, David, thanks for joining us today.
2: Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. That was a, quite a generous introduction. <laughs> thanks for that.
0: Well, it's all true. <laughs> So, you know, let's before we dive into the real meat of, uh, you know, the episode here today, I wanted to get a bit of a sense about that background. Uh so David, could you please tell us a little bit about what drew you to the subject of national security and business? Uh, as Holden said, you know, we often talk a lot to people uh, from the national security side, uh but you come at this from the business side, uh in contrast to our other guests. So how has your work been received so far? Are you hearing more from national security practitioners or from business folks?
2: Yeah, so that's a great question. So thanks for that. Uh, maybe I'll answer it in two ways. So like the first way uh, that I started thinking about this was I do a lot of, um, both in my classroom teaching at the university as well as uh, training that we do at uh, you know large firms or for board members and, and kind of senior leaders. Um, I do a lot of training around like corporate governance and over the last few years, as uh, both Andre and Holden, both of you will know, you know, the role of domestic politics and domestic social issues has become much a bigger agenda item for many boards uh, and companies, particularly U.S.-based companies. And so you could look at Me Too, Black Lives Matter, um, even uh, things related to mass shootings. And and, and so these became um Items that increasingly started showing up on uh, board members kind of uh, responsibilities of like, hey, what are we going to do? How are we going to engage with these very important topics of the day? Um, And so, you know, I guess naturally it doesn't seem to connect to some kind of international relations or national politics issue. But um, as I started observing this trend, what I realized is there's no natural break between, oh, this is a domestic political issue versus a geopolitical or international political issue. And so over time, uh, what I thought was naturally this scope of what boards and companies will have to deal with will just expand. Uh, and that as a res- that's gonna be a result of this switch. Uh, and there's a big debate going on about it right now, both um, amongst uh, investors and company stakeholders, as well as academics about this very fundamental question about what is the purpose of business. Right, and so you know, and historically, that was this idea. Well, in the in the recent history, let's say the last few decades, it's this idea is it you know shareholder profit maximization, you know, kind of Milton Friedman, or is it stakeholders um, and, and things like that? So I mean, that's a separate discussion. But uh, as the broader purpose of business became much more accepted, at least in certain uh, circles, then. Where do you draw a line between, oh, well, that's a domestic political issue, let's say Me Too or Black Lives Matter. We'll we'll get involved in that. But there's another kind of other type of social or political issue, say an invasion of a country, which, you know, is a a, a violation of rights. Um, Are we going to not engage in that because somehow that's international? That doesn't really make sense because most of the companies we're talking about are multinational anyways. Right. And so that's where I started thinking about it. So that's kind of like the first step. And the second step was my co-author uh, for the HBR piece, as well as uh, the, the, the book we're working on. and uh, The manuscript that we finished is a, a gentleman by the name of Brad Glosserman, who's a longtime public policy and think tank leader and thinker. And he's been a longtime watcher uh, of Asia. I, and I had uh, worked with him in previous kind of affiliations at different think tanks that I had. And he actually came to me with the idea. He's like, I think this is going to be a big uh, issue. And I have a lot of experience from the public policy, think tank, government, national security side of this. But I think it would be really interesting if we include an angle related to business. And so through those kind of two strands,
1: they kind of connected and um, this is the project that we have. Well, it's really fascinating. So it sounds like in some ways, like domestic politics kind of kicked the door open and then once it was opened, you had all sorts of issues flood in that they've got to start to deal with, including things that are in, it sounds like what you call in this article in your book, the, the, the new national security economy. Is that, is that an accurate way to think about it? Yeah, I mean, that's how I feel. I mean, other people may kind of feel differently, about it, but like
2: if you think about it from a board perspective or a CEO of a large company, listed company, you know, they, they're they receiving issues that are flooding in from – there's no borders to the issues uh, that they are dealing with. And so if you open the door of like, okay, business um is going to be beyond, we're not just going to focus on profit maximization. We're going to focus on a broader scope of responsibilities and duties. Okay, then that becomes a much bigger universe of, of things that companies uh, have to be responsible for. And a lot of that accountability is generated by stakeholders. And those stakeholders could be Customers and clients, it could be institutional investors, Uh, it could be just things that come up on their social media, and all of these have contributed to the broader debate and discussion that I think a lot of businesses are having about um, how they're going to engage in many of these, quote unquote, historically non-business
1: issues. That right. uh, makes a lot of sense. Well, getting to the kind of the heart of this is the new national security economy. Wh- what exactly is that? Can you give us a kind of brief outline of how you and your co-author see what it, what is happening in the, with the new economy here? Yeah, and so that that's also a
2: great question. So I appreciate that. So we're not saying that people haven't thought about this, and we're not saying that this is somehow some elements of it have been around historically for centuries. I mean, you could look at the British East India Company. I mean, like, there's always uh, been some intersection between politics and projection of power and how uh, companies uh, are involved in that, right? And economic policies for countries. But what we thought was unique, uh, I think, is two things. One is, though people are looking at strands of this, we hadn't found, like, a framework that kind of described what the world is like, increasingly becoming like, and will probably be at least for the foreseeable future. So understanding like, hey, what is in a kind of a, a conceptual way, what captures this dynamic right now? And then secondly, there are some unique aspects of some of those concepts that we identify that um, are unique. And so I'll talk about that in a second. Um, but we, we basically think the new national security economy is kind of framed by four pillars. So the the first is this idea of connectedness, which was caused by globalization, but that same connectedness has created a series of vulnerabilities that we feel, right? And so probably the the easiest example of that is uh, kind of supply chain disruption, right? Um, So so that's one, this globalization is great. It created a lot of net, uh, net goods, created benefits for a lot of participants, raised a lot of people out of poverty, et cetera, et cetera. But there have been negative externalities that have now arisen that we are been dealing with pre-COVID and is particularly during COVID uh, that have uh, amplified some of the, the issues that exist. Right? So, so this idea of connectedness, but the, the negative externalities related to that. That's one. The second relates to uh, basically geopolitical competition that we have between the West and, and, and China right now. Now, of course, like if we look back one generation ago, we had the Cold War where the U.S. was in strategic competition with the Soviet Union. Uh, what's different about China is China is a peer, near peer on most major elements. right. So for the U.S., you know, it was an ideological thing, you know, communism versus democracy. And, you know, at the time, it, there was a military component, particularly the early years of the of the of the of the Cold War, where, you know, you know, you could argue about the capabilities. Of both countries and who would kind of win out militarily. I think as time passed they, and, and with the benefit of what we have now and the the research that we have and the transparency of, of you know kind of uh, capabilities that we understand the Russia had, probably towards the latter in the Cold War. I, I think it's the, the arguments pretty easy that we we were we were probably ahead militarily. But um, large parts of the Cold War were framed basically by political ideology and then military competition. There's never really any competition between you know, oh, well, there's a Russian version of a particular product and the American version of a particular product, which one are we gonna buy, right? Uh, that that never existed. Um, in the strategic competition that we have with China, that's not the case, right? Um, we have strategic in terms of military competition now, at least in Asia, you know, maybe not beyond Asia, but at least in Asia, we have this military competition uh, with China. Of course, we're in economic competition with China. And so across more elements, there's the strategic competition, and, and and that is pretty unique, at least I, I would say in the last century. Um, so that's the second pillar. The third pillar is the the stakes of technological advancement are very high right now, and so we have we have uh, you know these buzzwords that get thrown around on like artificial intelligence, quantum computing, but in some respects, some of these new technologies and applications of these new technologies. Uh, are almost like winner-take-all markets in the sense that whoever gets there first and kind of establishes a dominant foothold can make it really difficult for other people to catch up. And we're seeing like iterations of this like with semiconductors, for example, right? So like what the U.S. is trying to, you know, the U.S. has advanced semiconductors uh, and then, you know, that's supported by, you know, semiconductor companies in Taiwan and South Korea, right? But the the point is uh, the U.S. or the West and um, you know, people who kind of affiliate with the West, they, they've kind of stepped ahead in semiconductor technology and they're trying to make it difficult for China to catch up, right? And so that, that's one example. I, I think that just amplified when you look at other technologies like artificial intelligence, um, types of technologies that in theory, like what we talk about, right? Is that these are technologies that can actually improve themselves in some ways, right? Um, and so that, that kind of competition is winner take all Type of competition, in particular of technology verticals. I think that ends up uh, is a very unique aspect of the, the current um, world uh, that we're like looking into. And the fourth is the way that companies and the private sector have been oftentimes reluctantly, at least in, in the West and particularly like in uh, the US, Britain, Australia, et cetera, have been dragged into the strategic competition. Now, for most U.S. companies and, what, you know, kind of Western liberal, democr- companies and Western liberal democracies, you know, generally, they don't think of themselves as public entities. They don't think of themselves, ha- generally speaking, of having a national purpose. Right. I mean, if we take Apple as an example. If you were to ask Tim Cook, and I've never met Tim Cook, so I don't know. But if you were hypothetical, if you were to ask Tim Cook, how would you describe Apple? I imagine he would say we are a global company that happens to be headquartered in the U.S., right? And that has a lot of implications. So, for example, um, a few years ago, when there was a San Bernardino terrorist attacks, and, you know, the FBI was going to Apple, like, hey, could you guys unlock the phone, blah, And they were like, no, we're going to go to court. We're going to litigate if we actually have to do it. Now, you know, they had, for whatever, they had, you know, some company values and. Pr- principles um, that they want to stand up for and uh, and i'm not here to say if that was right or wrong what i am saying is if that similar situation happened in a different context in a different country jurisdiction different outcome right so if we go to um we go to south korea for example and we go ask um any leader of a South Korean conglomerate, like a chaebol, like Hyundai, Samsung, any of these large South Korean companies, And we asked them to describe their company. Now, remember we said, Tim Cook's probably gonna say we're a global company that happens to be headquartered in America or based in America. These guys, they're not saying that. They're saying we're a Korean company that acts globally. And now why is that interesting? That's a very different framing. And that's important because South Korea is interesting because over the last few years, uh, presidents have um, annually pardoned a few hundred to a few thousand people every year on August 15th, or to celebrate Liberation Day, when basically Korea, end of World War II, Korea is liberated from Japan, um, et cetera. So, as part of that, uh, they have, you know, they do like so people who have been convicted or imprisoned, they let them go. Usually, every year, particularly when the economy is not doing well, South Korean presidents will release conglomer- leaders of conglomerates who have been. Prosecuted, convicted, and sentenced, are serving their sentences in prison, and the rationale is, oh, we need these guys to come out to help the economy. Imagine if Joe Biden was like, well, some guy, oh, uh, you know, somebody who's sitting in federal prison who's committed fraud, you know, like all these things, and you know, they defrauded all these people and whatever, they stole all this money, invested all this money. Well, we really need to help. We really need this guy to come out and help us with the economy. We're going to let him go. There would be an uproar. That's
0: the Bernie Madoff out of prison.
2: Yeah, exactly. So if you got someone like Madoff out of prison, there would be an uproar in the United States. You know, more than likely, there would be impeachment charges. You know what I mean? Like, it would be crazy. Um, And so, but my point of like, and this is a little bit of an extreme example, but my point is, in the West, companies historically have not thought of themselves. uh, You know, outside of like the defense industry and, and certain industries, in the main, companies have not thought of themselves as... Kind of national public entities with some kind of national purpose that's not the case even amongst us allies look at korea japanese conglomerates etc now if you go to a country like china which all the large companies in china in the major industries outside of technology are all state-owned enterprises even listed companies like large banks in china the largest banks in china and they're publicly traded the largest shareholder are, is the state, right? So of course they're going to have not an implicit; they have a very explicit national purpose, and it's not hidden. You can go onto websites in English and read different, like, oh, we, you know, our, you know, we're here to help, you know, national development, blah, blah blah blah. So, and again, this is not a some kind of moral judgment about what's right or what's wrong. It's just a an empirical description of what the the landscape for companies looks like. Outside of the US and per- outside of the West, but in particular outside of uh, the US, companies oftentimes have some kind of beyond profit purpose that serves some national or local government agenda. And that's accepted. For a lot of US companies, that's hard to like digest if you didn't grow up that way. And so then all of a sudden in this new context where there's new policies, sanctions, blah, 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 you're you're doing all of this stuff. Um, then you're like, oh, like, why are we getting dragged into this? It becomes a a very interesting and difficult uh, landscape to navigate.
0: So David, I I guess like, so I feel like at least my perception is that some of the US response is based on this perception that the US has been losing industry to China and two allies. So, I mean, I guess how do domestic politics, domestic security, how does that play into the US response? I mean, are they driving national security concerns to an even greater extent? In the present day?
2: Yeah. So I, if we think about domestic politics and domestic, I think you said domestic security, is that right?
0: Yeah. Domestic security. Yeah.
2: yeah so I, I think those are kind of two kind of connected, but separate issues, right? And if, if we stay on the domestic politics piece, because this is um, one that I'm assuming most of your listeners will be at least most familiar with, even if they're not China experts, uh, you know, being anti-China the last eight years or so. In the US, for a politician, either Republican or Democrat, that's easy. Nobody will dispute you. That is like perhaps the one of the single bipartisan issues that you have agreement on, right? Because there's nobody who's gonna stand up and say, well, hey, is this the path you want to go down? Because you know, it's easy points to score with uh, a domestic polity who is you know disenchanted with the economy, with COVID policies, with a variety of you know things that they're not happy about. And you, and you can come in as a, as a political leader, you know, locally elected government official, nationally elected government official, oh, China, it's China, it's China, right? Now, I'm not saying that China doesn't have an impact on some aspects of the US economy in terms of production and uh, are, are more things being produced at least in the last 20 years in China versus, yeah, sure. Um, but you know, that's not necessarily China's fault either, right? Business leaders made a choice to move production facilities. American or Western business leaders made a choice to move production facilities to countries, including China. And China's not the only country where a lot of these things are uh, being moved to. In fact, you know, the last give or take five to 10 years, a lot of production has moved from China to other countries because there's cheaper countries for certain things. Right. So I think it becomes an easy argument from a domestic political standpoint for China to be a scapegoat. Now, I'm not saying there's not any merit to some of those discussions, and particularly when we have discussions around uh, protection of intellectual property rights and things like that. Yeah, There's a very robust discussion to be had. But in terms of from a domestic political standpoint, at least in the American context, uh, you know that becomes a very easy discussion to have in a sense like, oh, it's China's fault. Now, I, what, I, and I'm sure some of you, Holden and Andre, and maybe some of your uh, listeners have probably seen this. There's, so there's this big, uh, I don't. I guess debate. I don't know what, what 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 point of this process it's in, but I guess some uh, agricultural conglomerate in China wanted to open up a grain factory or corn fa- or something like some corn or grain production facility in North Dakota, which happened to be a few miles away from a U.S. Air Force base. And then, like, so the argument now is, and so people are trying to hold this up because they're like, "Oh, we, you know, that's like." national security concerns like if we have this corn factory show up within a few miles or whatever it is very close to this user they could be spying the chinese could be spying i don't know maybe like maybe but like to me that just sounds a little bit like i don't know if that's like the most effective way to do that right like is it going to be really easy for some chinese spy in north dakota to be running around cornfields or grain fields there trying to spy on a U.S. military. I don't know. That just seems, uh, there seems to be a little bit more to the story than that, right? And then as you, as I, I, you know, I, I read through that a few days, or yesterday or the day before about, you know, some of how this issue came to arise amongst local politicians. And it seems certainly that there is some kind of domestic political kind of motivation there to be anti-China so and, and so that was a long-winded answer andre but uh yeah to that point um hopefully that uh addressed it
1: yeah no thanks very much for that i mean i think there's a really good point in there and that like obviously as you as you mentioned there's there's substance to, to this that, that china is doing things to the us economy you know there's, a, there's certainly a question of like how much is the impact how big is the impact and but the, the flip side of that is that it is also politically expedient um for people at the at the national level and sometimes at the local level to try to harness these issues to you know drive a you know uh, political agenda in a particular direction, and so I mean I think it, it, it behooves us always to be looking very closely at all right. So what what is the actual national security risk here as part of this? But but this kind of implies that sort but of a, real quick, And related yeah. to that point, sorry to cut
2: no, you no. off, but related to that point, and I, I forgot to add this, but the reason that so like now we can talk about some of the like are we really going to have like Chinese spies running around corporate? But when you have particularly elected officials, not appointed officials, but elected officials who come out so vociferously anti-China, then I I feel like it limits their space to be able to navigate what if they want to improve certain things, right? If you've come out so strongly against, it, it could be China, it could be whatever, any other agenda item. But once you do that to get elected or to get a soundbite, what do you do when now you have to make policy, progress on policy? And there's some opportunities maybe to bridge a divide with China or whatever policy item happens to be, you know, being debated. It really becomes difficult psychologically to roll that back, right? And so I think that's also, that's where things can become a little bit dangerous in some respects.
1: Yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, no. And I, I think that's a really valid point. I mean, in, in some ways, it seems like the, the idea that these national security issues have kind of knocked down a lot of walls and they've've they've invaded into domestic politics they're in the they're in the boardroom they're in sort of the even the, the local politics and you know in, in the Dakotas. And, and and in some ways they're extremely pervasive um, it, you know and I it kind of bring it back to just the focus on companies and and the sort of your guys' um, par- new paradigm that you're looking at with this uh, the new national security economy in some ways it almost sounds like the where a lot of the companies might, especially if you're in the semiconductor industry, others might cry that we're victims of this, right? We're we're being impacted by this, and we're just trying to to sell our wares and and that type of thing. But is that fair? Or are they are they somewhat participants? You mentioned about some of them were willingly and happily moving and exporting sort of U.S. industry overseas to you know seeking kind of cheaper markets or cheaper labor. Um, but it, in some ways it seems like they, they might play sort of politics with this as well. Like they get to navigate kind of between sort of these two giants that are duking it out. It seems like it's going to happen. Um, so what do you, how do you see them more as uh, victims, participants, or somewhere in between, or it depends on the company. I, I think it's very company dependent. I think,
2: so the company that comes to mind when we talk about this is, um, there's a, a South Korean semiconductor company called SK Hynix. Which has a variety of business and facilities and things both in China, so they're basically U.S. and China expert both. So for companies like that, who are like, "Hey, we're just like in the middle of this. Like, we're not American. We don't care about American foreign policy in the sense that, like, you know, I'm not a U.S. citizen, like." You know, like, why do I have to worry about what American policies and why is that impacting my business? And then, of course, in the China response, they get caught in it, and so now they're in the middle. And in the extreme, that may compel them to have to pick a market. Like, do we want to exit a particular market, um, either voluntarily or will we be forced to exit a market, right? And I think that is difficult for most companies. I think in the so there there could be to your point, hold there could be some companies who are maybe somewhat arbitraging the political opportunity to create some short term gains for themselves politically. That could happen. Um, And I'm not saying that doesn't, I think if you talk to any kind of savvy CEO who's thinking very strategically about this, however, they realize, Hey, like if we do that, that's kind of, that's only short term wins, right? Like we, over time, we're going to have to be in particular markets because what eventually will happen and what is happening already as the US and again I'm not saying you know I'm what uh, in the book and in the way I view this uh, I'm not trying to make any moral judgments about who's right and who's wrong Uh, what I'm doing is just making observations about what happens or what could happen and so what will likely happen in China and, and this was happening even before this but you know there's been this bigger push in China to be more self-sufficient. And there have been various moments the last few years that has become very apparent. So two, two examples would be like COVID. I think what COVID and disruption of supply chains made it very clear that even in China, that there are certain parts of their supply chain and their value chain that they say, hey, we got to bring this in-house. We have a risk to us nationally if we you know, don't bring this in-house. But also from a technology perspective, as the US has tried to um, wall off certain areas of technology and intellectual property and other things, there's been a big push that's this made in China, you know, this made in China push for certain industries. You know, that is a, an outgrowth of that. I mean, certainly there's an economic component to like let's have more economic growth. But there's an outgrowth of like, hey, we don't want to be vulnerable to being cut off. We want to be self-sufficient. And then what Over time, what will happen, what U.S. policy, so for like, let's use chips for an example. Over time, what will happen is that China will catch up. They'll catch up domestically and they'll figure it out maybe in their own way through their own forms of technology. But they will become less reliant on the U.S. if this continues over the next few years. right? And what that means then is the U.S. will have one less policy tool to influence that. Because once China kind of creates its own, you know, universe closed circle of like, and we don't need to rely on the West for that, then they can self-contain because their market is large enough domestically where they can sustain themselves. And so you see that in uh, internet technologies in China, right? They've basically, uh, you know, the great firewall, whatever where people talk about where, you know, Google is basically a non-business in China. And as a result, native Chinese companies like Baidu, Tencent, Alibaba, whatever, have risen to fill that space and they can do it, right? And, and so um, that becomes a long-term issue, I think, for U.S. policymakers, because once China creates its own ecosphere or ecosystem around particular technologies, then the reliance on U.S. technologies is significantly diminished. And so what would be the long-term implication of that? I, I don't know, but... Um, That hadn't
0: been the case so far. Yeah, and and I mean, like, you know, when we look at this issue, I mean, like, the the question comes to You know who or what is causing this, right? Like, is it particular countries, or is it pol politics? Is it like a systemic, or is it more personality based? For example, it being leadership dependent. And we've also talked quite a bit about the U.S. and China, but is this occurring in many other countries? For example, you know, in the European Union member states, uh, Japan, uh, India—is it expanding there? Uh, Will that worsen the impact?
2: Yeah. So I, it it certainly has expanded. Like. You know, recently, uh, so we're February 2023, early February 2023, uh, just I think a few days ago, there's kind of this announcement, I saw a news article about how like, the Netherlands and Japan, and I believe the US, um, you know, now have reached some agreement regarding uh, semiconductor policy, uh, basically, it's effectively limiting uh, some aspect of kind of uh, Chinese ability to kind of get certain technology. Yeah, so that is certainly happening now to your core question though, Andre, if the U.S., particularly, the, you know, kickstarted during the Trump presidency, had the U.S. not entered into such an anti-China, particularly around technology, um, you know, introduced such policies, would these other countries like the Netherlands or Japan independently be doing this? I don't think so, right? It's the U.S. kind of coordinating and using carrots and sticks to uh, encourage Uh, their allies and, uh, you know, kind of affiliated countries to create a, um, you know, basically more integrated policy. And China has seen this happen before, right? They saw it in the financial system, right? So the U.S. has done this uh, using the financial system. So like, you know, and Holden will know this because of his background really well, but, you know, effectively any bank that transacts or clears U.S. dollars is subject to effective U.S. financial regulation. Right, and so the that's a long arm of the law, right and um and as a result, the u s can integrate policy around that very easily, so this is kind of repeating itself in, in this sense too, and I, I think um that will continue um yeah, so I don't know
1: if that answer your question, but those kind of those are my thoughts. I don't know hold on. what do you think about that yeah. yeah, no, i I mean, I think that's a really good point i mean it, it, in in many ways, I think this is it's likely to continue to spread. I mean, and it's, as you kind of indicated, and and people have talked about this, that if it does continue, it's hard to imagine how the world doesn't cleave into at least kind of two kind of tech sectors, um, which could have influence over sort of two different financial sectors. And to be be fair, it's not, as you kind of indicated, it's not clear that it's just the US pushing for this, right? I mean, China wants to be self-sufficient. There's some push on their side that they want to decouple, because they don't want to be so dependent upon the US. That doesn't mean they want to cut everything off, but um, you know, it, it's, this is one of those things could, it seems like could easily accelerate, um, you know, with some sort of external event. And then we've suddenly got two very different systems that are sort of, and as you said, competing at, at, at multiple, multiple levels. Um, which just makes me think of all the companies sort of caught in between these two massive movements. Um, and, you know, I, I it, it, I my current job. We we talk to a lot of different business leaders about this and how they're they're looking at this, um, and a lot of them are really struggling to try to figure out how do they navigate this. Right? I mean, they they feel like they've they're kind of being caught between these kind of two different movements, um, and and you know I I, I think realistically it, it's difficult, um, but it, 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 and they feel and feel in some ways that governments kind of leaving them out. But I'd love to hear your opinion on this. Like, is this? Do you think governments are doing enough to sort of prepare companies for, you know, again, getting back to the the paradigm that you're getting to that, hey, you're going to be caught in the crossfire. You're on the front line. We're competing in the economic sphere. Buckle up. You know, today we're protecting semiconductors and we're going to, you know, pour a lot of money into it. But tomorrow we might have to sacrifice your industry for national security concerns. Um, I mean, these are the kinds of things you might want to see in terms of leadership from the government to help companies prepare for this, right? Give them predictability. Um, but I don't really see that. But maybe you're you might be uh, you're at a different perspective and seeing things from a different angle. But no,
2: I, I, I agree with you. I, I agree with you in general. Uh, the Policies themselves, I don't think are well thought out. Like So we just took an American policy related to some of it. I think sometimes they're very short sighted. Um, it's the politics that are driving the policy. Which then creates some issues I think, so that, that's one. I, I think secondly, um, I, I think government in general and the U.S. government, broadly speaking, up, irrespective of party, um, is very ineffective at implementing and thinking through second order, third order effects of policy. And so if we look at extreme examples, you know, we can think about the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq, um, other types of policy, both domestic and foreign, where like, oh, let's do this. And you kind of think about, okay, if we do this, this could happen, but you don't think about, okay, what could happen after that, right? And, and, and the reason I'm, I'm trying to frame it in a particular, way, it's not that there aren't people in government who think about it, because there are, but most of the time they're not politicians, right? They're career, uh, uh, you, know, t- you know, basically civil servants. Um, experts in their field. Uh, and so they maybe think about a particular issue. And, you know, I think there have been reports about this in Afghanistan and Iraq about where, you know, there are different departments that created reports and different things and basically we were ignored. Right. Um, so I think that is a big problem. And I think the, the difference between say like China and the US when it comes to these policies is that China is prepared to go self-sufficient and has put significant resources around these particular industries where they want to be self-sufficient. And so they, in, in fact, are supporting industries to go that route, uh, whereas the U.S. is maybe not as robust in their support. They're just saying, hey, this is a situation, you get ready, and that's it. Uh, and sometimes the you get ready is very sudden. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. not like, oh, we yeah. need a year to get ready. No, I mean, it's like, it right so
1: yeah no absolutely well then so so it sounds like companies are left somewhat to their own devices and what what would i mean you all, you and your 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 co-author have been looking at this a bit what do you see the companies that are successfully navigating this doing are they are they establishing like a a chief national security officer right someone who kind of looks at all these issues are they taking it up to the board are they shoving it into the security element how are they how are they wrestling Uh, with these sort of you know multidisciplinary issues. Yeah, so that, that,
2: that's, uh, that's interesting. So um, uh, both of you will be familiar with this company uh, just because of your interest in politics and foreign policy. But uh, there, there's a company called the Eurasia Group, which was founded uh, by... Ian Grammer, uh,
0: we, we he was our last episode. I just released his episode today, recorded with him yesterday oh, for...
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it, for, for many of us, and so, like when I first found out about the Eurasia group, I was still working in finance. Or I was maybe just finishing grad school. And I was thinking, man, those guys, like that could be a cool job. Um and and, and my point was they were kind of at the forefront, at least in a comprehensive way of thinking, hey, this idea of risk is going to impact political risk is going to impact business in a meaningful way. Right. And um I think they're the kind of the rationale for the business has been justified over the last whatever two plus decades that they've been around. And, and so the, and the reason I bring them up is uh, I think they, they published a report, I want to say with Ernst & Young or one of the, the, the big four large professional service accounting firms, where they um, talked about perhaps companies needing a chief geopolitical officer. So that, so when you mentioned that, that's what came to mind, like there, there's, there's, and you can find it's easily found on Google, uh, using Google search, um, you know, this idea of uh, chief geopolitical chief officer. And I think some companies um, informally have people who do that. And, you know, but you, it, that's typically not the title, right? It may be somebody, like, their chief risk officer, it may be their head of, you know, security, if it's a large company. You know, there's somebody who gets hatted with that. The problem is, I think there's two things. One is, usually that person, even though they're like, hey, I'm going to stay abreast of these issues, typically they don't have a lot of people who are focused on that. Right? So like on paper, in terms of job scope, it sounds like, okay, yeah, you, you monitor this. But like when push comes to shove, there's not like, stuff that they could actually do necessarily, right? So that that's the first thing. I think the second issue is oftentimes like lack of expertise and lack of being able to connect the dots. So and that those are kind of two step. Because if you don't have the knowledge, you don't even know what the dots are, right? But so there are a lot of organizations. So if you think of a bank, banks are really good examples of this. Investment banks. You know, there's all kinds of people who do risk. In fact, there are some banks who say everybody is a risk manager. They're irrespective of your role, you're a risk manager, right? So, but what that means is like everybody in theory is thinking about, it, but nobody's thinking about it, right? So then you have like, but it, you have like in a bank, you have like people who are lawyers doing legal risk. You have other people doing a credit risk, operational risk, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Every business line has some risk. So you have all these people looking at risk, but oftentimes it's very difficult to connect the dots of all those. So what does that mean? And I think the global financial crisis kind of highlighted that for a lot of banks because you had red flags popping up in certain areas of the bank, but they weren't all synthesized or looked at holistically, which then well, you know, led to these problems and it made it difficult to, to navigate. And so I think those are kind of the main problems. One, like Oftentimes, the people looking at those that geopolitical risks, they just don't have the authority or the manpower or you know capability to address it. And two, oftentimes organizations don't have the knowledge. And uh, even if they have the knowledge, it's difficult to connect the dots to say, "Hey, what does that mean?"
0: So, I mean, hearing all of this, it always seems like tensions are likely going to rise. And I mean, in our last episode with Ian Bremmer, we talked about his top ten risks. And the top 10 risks really talked about some scary stuff on the horizon, uh, yeah, particularly, yeah. you know, as always with the economic tensions between the United States and China, as we've discussed at length uh, during this episode. But it seems like, you know, we're almost going to be in this negative feedback loop. I mean, do you agree with that assessment? Uh, are we going to reach some equilibrium? And I mean, like, what's the most dire scenario? Are we going to pull up our drawbridges, you know, take our marbles and go home? Are businesses going to be limiting their global footprints in the face of all of this so
2: uh, maybe so that's a very interesting question i've never been asked that uh so let me let me take a step back though about what you were talking about, about because he, you know he he. i think he does this annually right is it an annual top 10 list right yeah
0: annually um, and yeah. I've,
2: I've read them in the past and sometimes they're really scary right um but here's the difference of, and this is very interesting I'm, because i'm really glad you brought that up the psychology of business person particularly someone who's entrepreneurial is very different than someone like who who's a, who's like an expert on like foreign policy for example or national security and here's why because the the person who starts a business that ends up growing you know to a multi-billion dollar business their psychology is like they're always gonna look at the best case scenario. Like, of course, they may plan for like, what well, if that doesn't work out? But if you think about it, by default, the reason they started this business and became successful is because they thought positively about it, right? They were optimistic, their default was to be an optimist about we can do it, we can make it work, whatever. Whereas if you have to ask the question, like, what's the worst case? And you really in-depth plan for contingencies. That's a very different psychology for, uh, you know, CEO, entrepreneur, you know, first generation, like launching their business. And like, yeah, they, they, they'll think about it, they'll discuss it. But in their mind space, they won't accept it. I'll give you an example. Uh, a few years ago, I was uh, talking with a technology company kind of in the fintech space. And they were looking to expand their business. And they were thinking about setting up an office uh, in different jurisdictions, and some of the office locations they were thinking about were in Europe. One of the, and this was pre, you know, Russian invasion of Ukraine, so this wasn't that, you know, it wasn't recent. It was a few years ago. But one of the office locations and jurisdictions they were thinking about was in a former Soviet republic. So I I don't want to go into names, but it was former Soviet republic, and. As we were talking about different options, they're like, "What about this? What about this place? What about?" This? And we were, we we're, you know, we we're just talking about pros and cons, regulatory regimes, et cetera. That this country came up, and in many respects, it's a favorable location. But I asked a question in the, in this meeting. I was like, "Well, what about if there's armed conflict? What if Russia decides to invade or do something like they did in Crimea, right in 2014, where they kind of annexed Crimea from the Ukraine?" And there was like pause in this meeting. And people were like dumbfounded that I would ask that question. And the reason wasn't, it wasn't because it was a profound question that they were thinking of. The reason was like, what are you talking about? Come on. Like, is that really gonna happen? And you know, people were making jokes, right? Now, fast forward, like Russia indeed fully invades, you know, a country on its border. Right? And so this is like this very minimal likelihood event which has this huge impact right and yeah. for a ceo that's like an entrepreneur or whatever i think the psychology it's very difficult to think of that in the negative in the positive they think about it all the time because that's why they started their business but in the negative that's a very different psychology Right, So so, so to, to that point, um, that has always stuck out to me. And I think you will see that repeated. Now, to the broader question about will people just roll up their bridges and go, um, I think there will always be global business. I mean, I, that's inevitable. Um, I think what this creates, it creates opportunities for countries who are in um, because of their affiliation, national policy, et cetera, that they can potentially navigate both sides. So this is harder for countries who are aligned with the West, like Korea and Japan. Though, in particular, Korea could maybe do it because there are, there are some connections that, outside of technology, where they really could perhaps do it. Uh, but that, that's hard because Korea has had a lot of lumps in the last eight years related to China, US foreign policy in China, and Korea's border of of that. We can talk about an example of that if you guys like. But um, I think there are potentially other countries out there that can potentially thread a needle. And it would give their companies in these countries an opportunity to be able to find opportunities that would have otherwise been taken. By a U.S. company or Australian company or Chinese company.
0: David, I really like your point actually on you know how they were so dumbfounded by the fact that you asked that question because they were like you know what are you talking about right and you know in the days and weeks and months leading up to the Russian invasion of Ukraine we had a lot of guests uh, come on and say you know experts they say that they. Didn't believe that Russia would invade Ukraine, and then you know that minimal, that uh, minimally expected uh, crisis actually happened, and actually, sort of, I don't want to bring back Ian Bremmer into the conversation, but it seems sort of pertinent because in the in my conversation with him. Uh, I asked him a question about one risk and he said, well, risk isn't necessarily a negative. Of course, Russia invading Ukraine is a negative, but risk is a deviation from the expected, from the normal that you always had to take into account when, you know, you're going to plan your businesses or do whatever, right? It's just a deviation from the expected and the normal. So I I really appreciated that comment.
1: Well, David, this has really, really been fascinating. And I think we're kind of coming to the end of our time here. But one thing that we love to close and get your thoughts on. And it certainly is thinking about all these sort of, you know, kind of panoply of, of issues here, um, you know, that it kind of spans a whole, different, you know, domestic politics, domestic security, um, international politics and national security. You know, if you're talking to a room of, you know, Fortune 100, 500 comp- you know, um, CEOs, talking to them about what they should be thinking about, what are the things in, with regards to national security, how that's going to impact them what would you be telling them? Knowing that knowing their mentality, that it's typically, these are all optimists, right? That's maybe they didn't start the business, but they're running it. So at least hopefully they're an optimist if they're running the business now, but to kind of get through to them that look, stay optimistic, but you need to be watching out for what and how are they gonna do that? Yeah, and, and so that that's
2: a, a difficult question. And I, I've received various forms of that question since the HBO article was was, was published. And, you know, it's it's difficult to say, like, there's this one thing, uh, uh, but um, I will say what organizations are typically bad at, and it's, we talked about that in the government context, but I would just say organizations in general, and it's not because people aren't smart, and it's not because people aren't interested in the topic, oftentimes it's because they don't have time, right, like, they don't have time to think through some of these issues, um, you know, and so in the U.S. context, maybe it's an election cycle. So they don't care, like, you know, eight years from now, whatever. They're like, I got to get reelected. I'm a, you know, whatever house, you know, I'm in the house, you know, I'm in the house of representatives. I, I got to go for reelection already, you know. And um, but as a result of that, they don't think about long term. Well, I, I have this framework that sometimes I, I, I talk to, um, you know, leaders, both business and government leaders about. And really what it comes down to is. Just asking, okay, What if we do this, what is the impact? Even the low likelihood, but very high impact. Okay, so that's one. Then what would be the impact of that, right? Just asking that, going through that two-step process compels you to think about what is the primary kind of potential results what are the secondary potential results? And if you wanna go beyond that, you do one more and you can see what are the potential tertiary level results. Now, as a re- you know, when you think about probability, the reality is most of those things are not gonna happen. But when you map it out, at the very least, you're thinking, oh, that could potentially be an issue. Let's at the very least game plan. If that happened, what would we do? Right? Most organizations, be it government or in the private sector, Will not think to that level. I think part of it's resourcing, time, who's gonna do it, whatever. There, there's reasons for it, but um, I that's what I would encourage. Because once your organization captures that mentality, it it can impact and improve a large aspects of your business, not just around political risk and geopolitical stuff. Like it just helps you think strategically. <laughs> so I would say like the great irony of uh, of people who quote-unquote, do strategies. They don't apply strategy in their own lives, right? Like, so you got, like, uh, you know, I have, like, former students who um, are working at, you know, very well-known, prominent, you know, consulting firms. They go do, quote-unquote, strategy for, you know, Fortune 500, Fortune 100 companies globally. And, you know, they'll come and talk to me about, well, you know, Mr. Lee, uh, you know, I've been doing this. I don't know what I'm going to do next. I'm like, why are you thinking about what you're going to do next? That's not strategic. That's tactical. You should be thinking about hey, what do you think you want to do three steps from now? If you have a general sense of what you want to do three steps from now, what you should do next becomes quite clear. Right? And not to say that you can't change that, but it, that's the type of perspective you should have. Right? But I think that little anecdote applies to organizations as well. As you, and that, the question that compels us to think okay, if that happens, you know, well, you know if, if a happens what would be the impact of that and then you do that two or three iterations then you can kind of look at things a little more globally so that's probably what i would say and uh, i there's like some exercises that i walk through where we talk about that but that's probably where i would go with that
1: Oh, uh, it's really helpful i mean and it makes a lot of sense in that you know rather than focusing on a particular issue it's it's more about almost adopting like a like a mental framework yeah, right absolutely. yeah exactly yeah and and that's going to help you um and so and this is so hold on, sorry. And I get excited about this, which is why I keep talking
2: so animated about it. But this is why <laughs> if we tie back into the first thing I said about the purpose of business question, this is where it connects. Because if you, if you believe the purpose of business is to provide perhaps value over the long term, then you will start thinking about things this way. Okay, what will be the impact even if I'm not here, even if I'm supposed to retire CEO next year? Like, those are the questions you think. If your mindset is, hey, like, I just want, want to ensure that I get, I hit our, our company hits our earnings expectations next quarter so our share price doesn't drop, you're not going to think about this, right? And, and, and that's the difference, which is why I think it's, uh, I always think it's very um, confident because, you know, there's some listed companies, American listed companies that don't provide earnings guidance now. Right? Because they say, hey, we say we focus on the long term, yeah. but we keep providing quarterly earnings guidance. Somehow that's a disconnect. And so, uh, you know, there's increasing this push for some companies. Eh, let's be more consistent. And I think that's important.
0: So, uh, David, thank you so much for joining us here today. It's been a really great conversation for our audiences. We'll be linking the article we referenced uh, and some more of David's works uh, in the description of this episode. And, folks, uh, we'll have more episodes of this Risky Business mini series uh, coming out very soon. Uh, our great collaboration with Trench Code Advisors. Uh, we'll also link some of those prior episodes in this uh, episode description. Please do check them out. But, David, Uh, for now thank you so much for joining us and taking your time no
2: thank you it's been a pleasure